0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. And this morning, we're going to wrap up our four-part series on the book of Jonah. And in a strange way, I have mixed feelings because I'm kind of glad to get Jonah to move on from my life because I've obsessed, I've been drowning in Jonah pun intended, for a while now, and the message of Jonah is messing with me. It's really exposed some things in me, and so uh, I've been very uncomfortable this whole series, and yet he's also become a good friend, and I'm going to miss Jonah a great deal. I think this is a book that you could read carefully every year of your life, and you will not exhaust the gifts that God wants to give you through this book. This morning, the last message comes from Jonah chapter 4, and it's entitled, Reckless Love. Can you take a wild guess what song we're going to close with today? <clears throat> yeah, amen. I think that's a very interesting phrase. It creates tension in me when I hear it, because it doesn't feel like those two words should go together, love and recklessness. In fact, some of the people who have heard us the most in life have been reckless people. And yet, I think there's something important to understand in the pairing of those two words. And I believe they capture well what chapter 4 of the book of Jonah is trying to get across. And I want to start with a little story. Yesterday, I was going to Starbucks with my daughter, Jordan, who came up for the weekend. And uh, we were going to do a little work. I was going to finish up the sermon, ironically, called Reckless Love. And I was at the intersection of Route 59 in Irving Park. It's one of those intersections where there's three lanes and just past the light, you lose the right lane and merges in and becomes two lanes. But when I'm going to the Starbucks, the Starbucks is on my right just past the light, and so I stay in that right lane because I can just ease right in and pull in. Well, there's a guy, and I don't know if this detail matters, but he happened to be in a Porsche SUV right behind me. And apparently, in his mind, this was a right-turn-only lane. And I was at the red light, I'm going straight, I can't do that through a red light, and he was not having it. He was gesticulating wildly, telling me to turn, and I'm like, bro, I'm going straight, so I'm making this gesture, I'm going straight, and he's like, turn, and he, was, he just started laying on his horn, and he wouldn't stop. I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, <clears throat> maybe he had to go to the bathroom really badly, or there was a medical emergency happening in his vehicle, <clears throat> I share the story because I'm on my way to a coffee shop to finish a message on reckless love. And I felt something starting to rise in me. I felt parts of my body wanting to rise. And I was getting very heated. And it was only years of pastoral ninja training that allowed me to lower my blood pressure and my heart rate and just kind of calm down. And eventually, by the time I got to the coffee shop, that upset had evolved into compassion that this guy, if he really is the jerk I thought he was, has to go through his whole life being a wrecking ball. Probably I'm not the only person he's doing that stuff to. I kind of felt bad. But I, before I felt bad for him, I felt bad towards him. Very bad towards him. In fact, probably so obvious that Jordan turned to me and said, Are you Okay. <clears throat> I share that because I realized yesterday that even when you're the guy preaching the message on forgiveness and reckless love, I don't think any of us are ever going to outgrow this challenge on almost daily basis to show grace to other people. I really thought that by age 52, I'd be much better at it by now, and I'm not. And maybe you're discovering the same thing about yourself, that you wish you were a more gracious person naturally, I realized I had to force myself. I did the whole... I, I zenned myself into a little better piece. of, But I realized the thing that came naturally to me was still something that clung to me from the old nature. And so I'm sharing this to tell you that I don't think we're ever going to graduate from the school of Jonah and the need to grow in grace instinctively towards other people. Now, it's been my experience when I watch a show with episodes that before they start the new one, they do a previously on. So I want to just give you a previously on Jonah, just so if you haven't been with us the whole series, I'm going to give you a quick rundown of what's been happening. Jonah is a prophet of God, and he gets an unacceptable assignment. His mission is to go to the people called the Assyrians in their capital city of Nineveh and preach a message that God wants them to repent so he could restore them to himself. He wants to be reconciled with these evil people. But Jonah has very good reason to hate this idea and to hate those people. This is not him being petty about something casual. The Assyrians were the worst, most violently evil people in the world of Jonah's day. And the things that they had done and would continue to do to other people, including Jonah's fellow Israelites, were horrible beyond imagining. So Jonah was not having it. And though he was a prophet of God, he booked passage on a boat going the other way, and he tried to run as far away from this assignment as possible. Have you ever been in that place where God and all of God's people around you are making it clear, you know what you have to do, and you're like, I know, but nope, no way. That thing which I know I'm supposed to do is unacceptable to me. So Jonah has to turn off, and as a prophet, you understand, he can't just run. He had to start numbing his heart to God because God doesn't just call once. He was probably the whole time on that boat going, Jonah, Jonah, seriously, Jonah, turn around. Jonah, are you really? Come on, Jonah. And he, he had to eventually go, shut up. And he put his fingers in his ears and went, blah, 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 blah. I'm not listening. You have to do that to shut out God's voice. And as he numbed his heart, he fell asleep spiritually and literally. And in the midst of this horrible storm that God sends to turn Jonah around, they find Jonah sleeping below decks. That's a a metaphor for spiritual apathy. That kind of state of heart you get to when you choose again and again to not listen to what God is saying to you. And as a result, he endangers not only himself, but everyone on the boat with him. They're all going to die, so finally he can't take it. He cannot face the idea of going back and resuming the mission but he cannot let all these other guys die because of him. So he says, you know what? I'm done. And the ultimate surrender for him, the giving up, is just kill me. I would rather die than face my mission or be responsible for all of your deaths. So throw me overboard and everything will be cool. So the sailors do it. He, he's thrown over the edge and he plunges to the depths of the sea. That's a symbol for death. Whenever you go below the water in ancient literature, it was always a symbol for dying. And at the lowest part, with his head wrapped in seaweed, as if that wasn't bad enough, God sends this huge sea creature to come and swallow him whole. Now, normally in a Hollywood, movie, that would be the ultimate death, his doom. But God didn't send that fish to kill Jonah. He sent it to preserve him. So that in that place, and sometimes this is true of our lives, at that lowest point, at the pit of death, when you feel like it's all done, there's a moment of quiet and stillness where sometimes you can hear and see and think most clearly. And Jonah has that moment in the belly of the whale or whatever fish it was. Maybe it was a kraken, I don't know. And in the belly of that beast, Jonah thinks, I only have one road To salvation, it is the living God. So he cries out, not for anything noble, but just please get me out of here. And even then, in that selfish prayer, it's enough for God. And he pulls Jonah out, spits him back on shore and says, go and resume your mission. So Jonah does it. But Jonah does it the way a lot of us did things when we were younger. He went through the motions, but really half-heartedly. He preaches a lame five-word sermon. In, In English, it's eight words, but in Hebrew, it's five words. Here's the message. In 40 days, you're all dead. That was his, he went from place to place in Nineveh. In 40 days, you're all going to get it. You're dead. If you remember the Hebrew word hafak, that word means destroy, or it means completely change, convert, transform. And Jonah's rooting for the first one, because that's the same word that God used to describe what he's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. He was going to hafak. Sodom and Gomorrah, because they were evil and he wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. No memory, no, no archaeological re- evidence, just they're gone. So God's gonna do this, he thinks, but instead God has the second meaning of the word hafak in mind. And so as Jonah watches, he realizes that instead of destroying the city of Nineveh, God is going to convert the city of Nineveh. And against all expectation, in response to this lame five-word sermon, the entire city is swept up in revival and repentance. Now, if you're a normal prophet of God, that should be the high point of your career, that the worst people on earth as a whole city of 120,000 people, including the king, are in sackcloth and ashes, fasting and remorse. You have just converted the worst people on earth to turn to your God. And that should be the pinnacle of your career as a prophet. But for Jonah, this is where we pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. I've read probably 12 different translations of this first verse, and they're all hilarious to me. But to Jonah, this all seemed very wrong. I don't know if the Hebrew um, is expressed well in the English in any of the translations, but this is very strong language in the Hebrew. This is all completely not the way it's supposed to be as far as Jonah's concerned. And he became angry. That word angry in the Hebrew is a word that is usually used to describe the way fire burns. So he wasn't just like ticked or annoyed. He was that kind of angry. Have you ever seen a person who's so angry, in your mind's eye, you see their head on fire? You know, that kind of angry, like it's rage. They almost can't talk. Their their face muscles are twitching, you know, like that kind of. Maybe some of you guys who are younger have seen your parents in that state. Uh, Maybe if you're in a relationship, you've seen your partner in that state. That kind of angry that's what we call apoplectic is that kind of mad. He can't handle what's going on here. Because these are the worst people on earth. People who really the best thing for them is if they stopped existing. That would make the world a better place if they would just stop existing. It's funny how easily we make that proclamation as a fellow human being about another human being, what, we miss the irony of what kind of monstrous pride and arrogance that touches in us, exposes in us, and yet we can say it, the world would be better if people like you, you people, were just gone. I don't think there's anything funny in that sentiment, but we feel that a lot of the time. And Jonah cannot, and what he says basically is, I'd rather die than live in a world where these guys get to keep going scot-free. What's interesting is Jonah here expresses his reason why he ran in the first place. He's like, I knew this was going to happen. So he's not surprised that it happened. He's just really disappointed that it happened. He knew that if he extended the offer of forgiveness, that because of the way God is, any sign of remorse, God would accept, and he would receive these Ninevites back. And so he says... Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fling to Tarshish. I knew that you are. So he's now chewing God out. He's rebuking God for his character. He's saying, I know you're like this. You're so annoyingly gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. You are a God who relents from sending calamity. You're like the guy with the biggest gun who never wants to shoot it at anybody. What is your problem? Why have Thor's hammer only to drive nails? Once in a while, you got to crush some skulls. Why not do it? There are people clearly in need of some head crushing. And yet I know what you're like. You just love to be all soft and gooey and patient and loving. And I don't want that for these people. And I knew that's what you wanted, so that's why I ran the other way, and now everything I predicted has happened. What's interesting is this five-point description of God's nature, his heart, it's a very well-established picture of God throughout Judaism. In, In fact, it quotes Exodus 34, 6, where God first speaks this description of himself. This is not people describing God. This is God describing himself. And do you remember the incident when Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments? And while he was gone, he was taking too long. So the people down below made a golden calf idol. They started worshiping it. And when he came down with with God's commandments, what he sees is idol worship happening in a short few days that he's gone. And he can't take it. And he takes the Ten Commandments and he shatters it, right? In that story, God says, I know you're upset with the people of Israel. I am too. But let me tell you what kind of God I am. And he speaks these words about himself in the face of that betrayal of his people. He says, I am gracious. That word, and I know this sounds like a redundant description, but that word gracious translates a word that really means you're more kind and generous than you have to be. You're more kind and generous than you have to be it's used in another passage describing if you have to, if your neighbor gives you his cloak, his outer garment, as a pledge against an obligation, a debt, and you have it, you know, it's what we call collateral, right? You, have, you still owe me a bunch of money, so until you pay me back, I'm going to take your coat, and it's the dead of winter. So it's that idea, and God says, if you do that, it's fine that you took it, but every night give it back to him, because how else is he going to stay warm at night? Now, this guy owes you a debt, And you could hold on to that coat and make him suffer to hasten his repayment of his debt. But what God says is, I'm not that kind of guy. I know you have a legitimate right to hold that coat as a pledge, but give it back to him every night because the guy is cold and he needs to be warm. That's being way nicer than you have to be. Have you ever sensed that somebody wants to get something from you? They're like, yeah, I have no way to get to this place. If only I had a ride. And you have a car, and you're like, I know what you're asking. Like, Can I give you a ride? But I don't want to say it. And I don't have to give you this ride. And God says, the way I am, I'm going to always offer. I'm kinder than I have to be. He also says, I'm compassionate. That word is an interesting Hebrew word. It means the softness of a mother's womb. It describes the tenderness a mother feels for the baby in her womb. Then he says he's slow to anger, meaning many of us, as soon as we have a legitimate reason to be angry, we don't just fear anger, we relish it. It's like Tabasco sauce. Oh, that's what makes life taste spicy and interesting. I love when I have a good angry, when I have a legit, in fact, what would half of America do without President Trump? I don't know what, we'd, we'd be so bored all day. You could say you're upset with someone, but let's be honest, most of us, That's the thing that makes life taste good. We relish our anger and our rage. The worst thing that could happen to some of us would be if everyone behaved perfectly. You're like, that's hell, that's so boring, everyone's nice. Who am I supposed to be upset with? And he says, I am not like that. I don't enjoy being angry. I know it's necessary, but I don't like it. He's abounding in love. That's a very powerful word in It's chesed. It's the strongest word for love that that language can come up with. It means unrelenting love. Another translation you'll commonly find is steadfast love. The closest parallel we have in the New Testament is agape love, which we translate as unconditional love. That kind of love that doesn't return what you give but always steadily loves the way it chooses to love, not as a response to you, but as a response to me. Finally, he says, I'm a God who relents from sending calamity. I have a hammer, and if I swing it, you will all die. And I will not swing it often. I could, sometimes I should, but if there's any way around it, I will do that. Now, this is the indictment which Jonah delivers against God. He says, you're like this, and it sucks because this world is full of people who need their heads crushed. And so he says, now, Lord, you left me no way out. I can't bear this. I don't want to live in a world where the Ninevites go free. I don't want to live in a world where someone that evil just gets to say, you know what, I'm so sorry. I regret what I did, and that's enough for you. And so he chooses death again. Jonah is a really somber person. He would rather die than fill in the blank. If they wore T-shirts in those days, I think his T-shirt would say, I'd rather die. I'd rather die. Let's not be too hard on him, though, because I think most of us have been where he is. Where we're expected to forgive someone who has done something to us that does not feel forgivable. Unprovoked, unprompted. So beyond anything one person should do to another person. And what made it worse was they never showed any remorse over it. I think that's the worst part of some of the pain we've endured is that a person hurts us so deeply and as they try to explain themselves, you could tell they haven't at all at any point truly understood the nature of what they've done to you. They've shown no remorse. And if you've ever been hurt badly by another person like that, then I think it's easier to forgive Jonah for his emotional and spiritual weakness at this point. I mean, I was trying to picture what thoughts are going through Jonah's mind that he would say to something this extreme, like, I'd rather die than live in a world that works like this or with a God who acts like this. And I, I, I can't say for sure this is what's going through his mind, but I'm taking some guesses here. I bet you he was thinking stuff like, some evil, the person who does it has to pay the full consequence, even if they say sorry, Are, are. Legal system works that way. If you murder someone, you can, be, you can feel really, really bad about it, but you still have to go to jail, right? Like, you, you can't get out of jail for murder just because you're really, really remorseful. And so we live in a, 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 under a judicial system that recognizes there are certain things so bad that no matter how much you repent, you will have to pay the price. It's justice. And so I'm sure he's had thoughts like that going around. Some evil is so bad... That even the most sincere apology cannot make it right. And even if you do apologize sincerely, it should not allow you to get a second chance at life. It feels wrong that a person who's destroyed another life gets to say sorry and have a second chance. It just feels wrong. I don't want to release you. I don't want you to be okay. I don't want to restore our friendship. I don't want anything good for you right now. I just want you to pay. Because that's how the world, it feels to me, should work. And there's that war then between what we know in our hearts and our spirits and what we feel in our guts. And I think we've all been there. Another thought might be, what's the point of living righteously if it's this easy to get off the hook? I mean, why try really hard to be good when even the baddest people get to just go, man, I'm so sorry, and that's the end of it. Doesn't it discourage righteous living if getting out of jail is that easy? And finally, maybe he's thinking, what will evil people learn if they can escape punishment just by repenting? Doesn't that reinforce evil? Doesn't that encourage evil? Are you with me? Are you feeling some of what Jonah might... Here's the thing about grace. If you're a thinking person, forgiveness and mercy and grace always create tension. Because even if we know the Bible tells us God says this is the right thing to do, it almost never feels like the right thing to do. It pulls and stretches at something deep down in us that says, this doesn't feel right at all. I don't think the world should work this way. And I'm upset that God builds his entire kingdom around mercy rather than just justice. And so God asks him a question. I hear you. I know what you're feeling. But let me ask you something. Is your position right, Jonah? Is it right for you to be this angry? And he's not saying, do you have a right to be upset? God understood that the Assyrians were people you should be upset at. In fact that's why he was sending joan in the first place the evil of the assyrians in nineveh did not escape god's notice he was as upset about it and they were as accountable for their actions as anyone on earth what he's really asking and this is a better translation of that that hebrew phrase is is anything good resulting from your burning and anger in other words if i did what your your heart and your flesh are telling you i should do what will result If everyone evil gets the full weight of justice, is that the world you want to live in, and is that a God you want to follow? And I think the implicit question, which he's not outright asking, is then what will become of you down the road? Because let's face it, maybe you'll never be as bad as the Assyrians, but unless you're going to say, I'll never be bad again, do you want to live in a world and with a God who doesn't provide an exit ramp from the things we've done? Do you wanna live under a God and in a world where perfect justice is carried out every time? We have a very divided heart about justice. When we escape it, we're so happy. When others escape it, we're so upset. That's just the nature of justice. I, wa- I always want the dean of students to be more lenient to me and less lenient to my competition. It's just the way it is. It's better for my GPA if you get kicked out of this class, I think Jonah missed the irony completely. That rather than shouting at him, think about this he's the prophet of God and he's chewing God out for being too nice. If I were God, I would not be asking questions at this point, I will be shouting back Hey, insect named Jonah, look at my face, stop talking. That's just how I am. I, I, I'm not God thank, God. thank God I'm not God. <laughs> you should all thank God I'm not God. <laughs> but he's missing the irony that God is still nudging with questions. I, I don't understand that. He's saying, Jonah, come on. Is it really okay for you to feel what you're feeling? And as he asks this question, Jonah is not ready to talk about this. He's like, you know what? And have you ever been in that place with someone where you ask them a poignant question and they just, there's, they know what the right answer is. They're not going to talk to you. They just look at you and they go. And you're like, okay, good talk. <laughs> I've had this happen actually twice in the last week. I ask something and the person just stares silently and then the meeting's over. It's so awkward. What they're saying is, I'm going to give you the hand. I'm not ready to have this conversation with you. I know what you're going to say. I know somewhere deep down you're right. I'm not going to go there right now. And so when there's nothing to say, we just walk away. That's what Jonah does. He goes, and he turns around. And he goes outside the city, finds a little spot east of the wall, and he makes a little makeshift shelter. And he sits under. He goes, all right, it looks like he's going to forgive these people, but there's 40 days. Who knows? Maybe by day five of this, they're going to go back to the old ways. They're going to to say to themselves, we're the richest, most powerful people in the world. What are we doing? Humbling ourselves. And maybe they will revert, recant, and God will send the fire anyway after all. So he wants a, a box seat to the show. So he makes a little shelter and he's watching. What I love about God is as Jonah walks away like a petulant child from the conversation... God tries again. Round two. Jonah had gone out and made a little shelter. And the Lord, seeing this, and it was hot outside the city. There's no shade, no roof. So God causes a leafy plant to grow up over the shelter. And it creates this nice canopy of shade. And Jonah, it says, um, God sends it to give him ease for his discomfort and. Jonah was, and this is, not, again, a very strong word, and he was exceedingly happy about the plant. What's interesting is this is the first time in the whole story Jonah's happy about anything, okay? He has been miserable the whole time. I think we all know someone like that. If you don't, you are that person. Just miserable all the time, negative all the time, angry. All, I know somebody in my life who calls me at least once a month, and his first words are always, I'm so angry. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> Here we go. And you have to be patient, gracious. You've got to answer the call. But it's really unpleasant starting every phone call with, I am so angry. For the first time in the story, is happy about something. And what he's happy about is that his head isn't so hot anymore. And God will accept that. He's saying, good, at least you're capable of feeling something not angry. Let's start there. And then God does another interesting thing. He goes, but I'm, I want you to learn something, Jonah. So he provides a little worm. The worm chews the vine, and the vine dies. And all of a sudden, Jonah's back to where he started, his own shelter, the thing he made for himself, minus God's intervention. And it sucks. He's hot again. And he's like, man, I loved that vine when it was there. But now that it's gone, and here's again his T-shirt, I am angry enough to die which is strange because he's just back to where he started. He's back to the world he'd made for himself, and yet it was now viewed as unacceptable. God then tries again, and he says, let me ask you that question one more time. Is this right, Jonah, the way you're feeling? You've just had this massive mood swing from exceedingly happy to angry enough to die over a plant. Now, we as the audience, knowing the whole story, we're laughing at Jonah, going, what, a, what an idiot, and yet we shouldn't be so hard on him. Because what he's saying is, I'm going to grant you the legitimacy of your strong feeling. I'm not even going to rebuke you. I'm not going to give you any challenge to that. You've been upset about a plant, so happy when it was there, so miserable when it was taken away. What if that was legitimate? I'm going to give you that, but Jonah, pause for a second and think. Don't I also have the right to be concerned about a city full of 120,000 people that I made, that belong to me, and have run away? All God is saying is, can you give me the same consideration I'm giving you? I'm so thankful God didn't say, You're an idiot. You're so happy and so angry about a stupid plant. He doesn't rebuke John. He just says, look, you've been this upset, this emotionally involved with a piece of shade. Can you grant me that I, as the creator of the universe, should bear some burden for a great city of 120,000 people? And I love this. PETA, this should be their key verse. He says, and many animals, too. He just throws in that, like... Look, I made everything in that city. Should I not feel a weight in my heart? And he says something interesting about them. He says they don't know their left hand or the right hand from their left. That doesn't mean they're innocent or too dumb to know better. It's not that they're ignorant. They know the difference between left or right. He's not saying they're stupid or helpless. What he's saying is they are so lost in their moral compass that they've only known one way of living with their power, And this is how they've chosen to live all the time. They're so godless, so self-centered, they don't know any other way to be. Their compass is off, but they're sailing true north according to their guides. And he says, shouldn't I want to do something about a city this powerful that is this lost? I wanna illustrate Jonah's dilemma through a more current story. On September 6th, 2018, an off-duty Dallas police officer named Amber Geiger was coming home to her apartment and she approached the door, and this is her, by the way. um, As she approached the door, she saw that it was slightly ajar and she got alarmed. She drew her, her weapon Entered the apartment and saw a man, an African-American man named Botham Jean, sitting on the couch eating something and believing him to be a home intruder. Without announcing herself, she fatally shot him and then called 911. A lot of adrenaline, a lot of in the moment, terrible, horrible thing that happened that was done. And after the dust had cleared, she looked around and realized this was not even her apartment. Mr. John happened to live in the exact apartment one floor above hers and she wasn't thinking or counting steps and she came off from the wrong floor and entered his house where he lived, minding his own business, eating ice cream. And she shot him to death in his house. All around, this is one of the worst stories I've come across. It's just so horrible and there's nothing happy about this. It wasn't like she plotted this, but there was a lot that went into that decision to shoot. This is Botham Jean. He was loved by just about everyone who knew him. He was a leader on his campus when he was at Harding University. He graduated to become an accountant with PricewaterhouseCoopers. He was a worship leader at his church and a good friend to many. And his death, his murder, caused so much grief in so many other lives. I look at this story, and my first human instinct is to assign blame and hand out punishments. And that has to happen at some level in order to hold society together. There was a lot that happened in the aftermath of that shooting that caused national outrage. There was a clear racial component to it. There was a lot of mishandling of the way the case was pursued. Initially, Officer Geiger was just charged with manslaughter rather than murder. But on October 1st of this year, just about a month ago, she was convicted of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. At the sentencing, Botham Jean's brother, Brandt, made a statement that went on the record. And I want to read you a portion of his statement. He said, If you are truly sorry, I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. I love you just like anyone else. And I'm going to say, I hope, and I'm not going to say, I hope you ride and die just like my brother did. But I presently want the best for you. And I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone. But I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ will be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. He then asked Judge Tammy Kemp for permission to hug Miss Geiger. And it was granted. And then after that, when the case was finished, before she was hauled off to prison, Judge Kemp herself, also an African-American, stepped down from her bench. And she handed Miss Geiger a Bible and hugged her. And this whole thing of the hugs and the forgiveness ripped the people apart who were following this case. Because half said this is exactly what we need more of in our divided nation, in our broken world, is we need to see mercy like this. There were a lot of other people, and I do understand their heart, said this is so cheapening to the senseless act that happened, to the injustice it revealed, to the rampant prejudice that remains under the surface of this country, in the hearts of many who have not outed themselves. They say that it minimized the injustice involved with the investigation and the way the case was pursued. And maybe that's fair enough. I didn't follow the case closely enough to say, but a lot of people were outraged, and I do understand that outrage. But what so many people said was, even on a personal level, Brant Jean had no right. He was misguided and wrong to forgive the killer of his brother." I'm sharing that story not to make a political statement, not to suggest that I've studied the legality of this case, the criminality of this case at all, but simply to isolate on that one statement that he was wrong, even on a personal level, to forgive the killer of his brother. And I want you to think about just the whole mess of this situation. How regrettable the whole thing is. See, forgiveness is scandalous. Because the greatest acts of forgiveness are aimed at people who least deserve it. They've done such horrible things that if the world is right and the universe is balanced, that person should never have a way out. They should be made to pay. And I'm not talking theoretically, because many people in this room have been the victims of injustice and evil like that. And I understand how hard it is to hear these things in church. Because some of us have been treated so horribly by someone that it has completely affected our whole life. Some of us have never recovered from that evil. And everything in us says the only thing needed is justice right now. What's interesting is God asks this question, and then the book ends. I'm a little OCD. You can't just end it there. Surely there was a scroll that got thrown out along the way. How does Jonah answer? It's so unsatisfying for the book to end there like that. Like, that's it? But I wonder if that's God's way of saying that question wasn't just for Jonah. In the end, it was for all of us too. You see, often when someone does something bad to us, we obsess over what they did, and the more we obsess over it, the more that human being only becomes the thing they did to us. They are not just a person who hurt They are a herder. They are not just a person who committed murder. They are a murderer. Now, that's technically a true statement, but this is the nature of injustice, of pain, is it causes all of us to objectify the person who caused the pain so that they are no longer a person to us. They are just the thing which they did to us. And the more we can objectify another person, the easier it is to harbor unforgiveness and continue to treat them like an object of scorn and not someone whom God has made. This is the scandalous, reckless nature of the wideness of God's mercy, is when we see it, it bothers us because it includes not just people who are kind of bad like us, but people who are all bad like X, Y, Z. And it feels wrong that the same grace that you and I get should be accessible to people who have only chosen evil as often as they can. In fact, the recklessness of the love of God, the mercy of God, is that it almost encourages evil to persist in the world. If every time someone was this evil, they just got erased, wouldn't the world be a better place, we think? And that question with which he leaves Jonah shouldn't I be concerned? Because if that's all he did, what would the world be? What would become of us? I really believe the book of Jonah is not just a story about a prophet who was wayward and disobedient. It's a book about us. And all this time I've been journeying with Jonah, I've been thinking about his life and his story. But I think all of us can see in his story a reflection of our own. There are a lot of little things you and I can easily forgive, but what do we do about those life-defining hurts? Those undeserved, unprovoked acts of evil, where someone basically destroyed our whole life, took away our innocence, woke in us a a darkness, a negativity, a cynicism and mistrust that we've never been able to shake. What should become of such a person? And because we have such an instinctive justice orientation, some of us have never tried to recover earnestly from that. Like Jonah, we're sitting outside the city, waiting out the full 40 days, just hoping that eventually the fire will come from heaven and consume those who hurt us. And God, through this book, exposes something about himself that we absolutely need to confront. Theologian Walter Wink, who sits on a different part of the theological spectrum than I often sit on, and I I have to say to you, Um, I grew up in an era where our seminary professors just in the most paranoid fashion warned us to divide all Christians between lines of conservative and liberal. Lately, I've committed myself to reading at least one out of every four books from someone who I completely disagree with. What I'm finding is that they are really sharpening my theology and challenging me to stretch what I believe. It is making me a better Christian, not a worse one, to read the writings of those who I once dismissed as wrong. Now, Walter Wink doesn't quite sit that far on that, but he's not a person I would normally read. But in his book, Engaging the Powers, which explores the dynamics of how we relate to power that's stronger than ours, what we do in the face of our own weakness compared to someone else, Really, it's an exploration of how we treat the enemy, because Walter Wink is a complete off-the-charts pacifist. And here's what he says. I think this is one of the most poignant things ever written about our enemy. He says, that is the gift our enemy may be able to bring us, to see aspects of ourselves that we cannot discover another way than through our enemies. Our friends seldom tell us these things. They are our friends precisely because they are able to overlook or ignore this part of us. In other words, your friends are your friends because they don't get in your face all the time. The enemy is thus not merely a hurdle to be leaped on the way to God. The enemy can be the way to God. We cannot come to terms with our shadow except through our enemies. For we have almost no other access to those unacceptable parts of ourselves that need redeeming except through the mirror that our enemies hold up to us. <clears throat> I often think how people who completely ignore social issues suddenly become so vocal because a public figure made the wrong, the wrong move. And I'm not disputing that that public figure did make the wrong move. I'm saying, where were all of you before this became a public scandal? What were you doing about it before there was an invitation to just be publicly outraged about it? Isn't that dishonest? And what he says is, we need our enemies because they expose in us those things that have fallen asleep or been hidden and shouldn't be. And our friends usually won't do that exposing. They're our friends precisely because it's easy to be with them. It's comfortable. It's comfortable. Hey, when you're with the wrong person and you're dating, let's say you're a teenager and you're with the wrong person. Have you noticed something? All the friends who are like, girlfriend, you got you to gotta dump him now. And you're like, you're not my friend anymore. My true friend would be like, oh, he's so cute and all that. And you would support me until it, it all fell apart. And so what we do is, if you start bothering me, we're not friends anymore. And That's why we need our enemies, because the friends we usually keep are the ones who rarely speak to or point at the things in us that are the darkest, the things that actually need the light of God shined. Only a true friend will take that risk. Everyone else cares about you so little, they're like, I don't really care what you do with your life. You do you. You may think it's an act of friendship to leave you alone. That's just another way of saying I'm apathetic when it comes to your choices. I really don't care what you do. It doesn't matter to me. I have no opinion, frankly, about how you choose to live your life. I don't know about you, but in my experience, that doesn't draw me closer to someone. It makes me feel like, boy, I matter so little to you, you cannot even conjure an opinion about my life. Now, I'm not suggesting we should be judgmental, but I'm suggesting that our true friends could expose our darkness. But it's usually our enemies who do that better. We're going to move into communion. I'm, I'm going to move us, transition us into communion this way. I don't think any of us are going to get through this life without collecting some enemies. You know how when someone is killed in the movies, the police always ask the next of kin, do they have any enemies? And I thought, we live in the year 2019. Who's got enemies these days? It's not like I have a bond villain or a foe who is out to get me. And yet, I think the truth is, we do have enemies. People who we hold in a place of unforgiveness. Who we say, right now, there's no place back to reconciliation between us. I have a category that I put you in, and you're never getting out of that category. You and I Don't have anything. Can you just help me feel not so alone? Would you raise your hand if you've collected an enemy or two along life's journey? (laughs) Okay. I just want you to know that if you didn't even feel strongly enough about it to raise your hand, please don't feel so bad about your enemies. You have an amazing life. So blessed. Most of us, we'll collect some enemies along the way. And the reason we do communion in part is to remember something in this act that helps us understand who we are. And it helps reframe who that enemy is to us. Because as far as I'm concerned, my enemies are only people who have done wrong to me and have never shown remorse. There are people who are not deserving of forgiveness, but only of justice. And yet it's at the cross that we finally understand every single one of us by our own choices was once the enemy of God. We didn't cross that bridge ourselves. It was a bridge extended to us. I've benefited so greatly spiritually from receiving Pastor Tim Mackey's sermons on the book of Jonah And I want to honor him by closing with something he said in his last sermon on the series. He's substantially smarter than I am, so he actually pulled five sermons out of this. I managed to get four. And he says this. If there is one place in the world where the spiral of humans wronging each other and responding to to that wrong with other wrongs stops, it stops at the cross. And the community of people that form around the cross are called to live differently. Not because we think we're better, but because we have been shown grace and compassion by a God who is slow to anger, who's abounding in love and kindness towards us. The temptation in a sermon like this is to believe, yeah, 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 but you don't know my case. I understand, but that person is not ready to receive the forgiveness. And Maybe they're not. But what is God exposing in you at the foot of the cross about the way you think of another human being? The way you hold them in a place where there's no way out. You are only this and nothing more. Isn't it another way to condemn someone who God has made to imprison them. And how will you confront the repeated teaching of Jesus that one of the greatest proofs that the gospel has penetrated our hearts is that we are then somehow able, supernaturally, to forgive our enemies? There are many parts of the Bible that we acknowledge in our heads and then just skip over in our lives. But I want to tell you, God is not skipping over those parts with us. And that's probably the place he most wants to work in you right now. If you're in a place where there's a person in your life that you are choosing knowingly never to forgive, never to release, that it's likely not that person alone who's in chains, but it's us. And I'm not telling you just to find the goodness in you. That doesn't exist in us. But we're going to take communion today to remember something profound. Jesus said, each time you do this, remember me. Because every person who comes to this table came once as an enemy of God. And in what you're doing here, you're remembering that God treated you better than you deserve to be treated. And at some point in receiving that, we have to become willing to do the same. It's not easy. It's not something we once learn and never have to learn again, which is why we don't just do communion once in our life. And never again. We do it regularly for this very reason. I'm going to invite the elders of the church to come forward. If we could get some form of music playing. Here's what we're going to invite you to do. Just take a second to prepare your heart. And especially for this day's communion, don't just think about your own spiritual condition, but begin by thinking about a person in your life, especially if this is something fresh for you, someone that God is challenging you to have the reckless love that he has, to dare to see that person as something other than the bad thing they did, to somehow look for the humanity, the shared common humanity, behind the evil which they've done and say that, God, that person hurt me. But there's someone you made, and you are right to have concern for them. Help me remember as I take the bread and the cup that I was not restored to you because of what I did, but because of what you did. Shape my heart. Help me to forgive. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. I invite you now to take the elements, and as you do so, pause and pray, and then I will close us. Let's pray together. God, in taking communion today, as a church family, we affirm something important. While we may not agree on every facet of our faith together, we agree on this one thing that any righteousness in us comes first from you. We are not righteous in ourselves, but we were the enemies of God. And it was your forgiveness that gave us a way forward. Thank you for the many ways you've grown us during our relationship with you. But We remember where it started and we ask you to help us never forget that we might never become self-righteous. We would never become judgmental. We would not remain unforgiving, but we would become the people who follow a king who leads with grace and mercy. We pray especially for those this morning who are genuinely struggling in their hearts with this. And that struggle is coming out as resistance, as despair, as numbness, maybe just laughing it off. But I pray, Holy Spirit, you would break through and help each one of us align our lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that we can't do it without your help. It's just too much for us to bear. We see so much of Jonah in ourselves, and we cry out to you to help us because we cannot get to that place on our own. So help us now, Lord Jesus, to miraculously forgive those that we in our flesh simply cannot. We pray this in Jesus' name.